Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we're going to continue exploring the first set of what are seven sets of important prophecy terms. And this is a um, new teaching series that we are uh, going through right now in preparation for our general overview of all the prophetic events that are going to take place starting from now through uh, eternity. And eternity is described as what we find in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. And, of course, that'll be the end of God's plan for mankind as he takes them from the fall in the garden to the complete redemption of mankind and the final act of God, which is the removal of sin from the world, removal of sin from heaven and from the world. So everything will be back to its perfect state in what we call eternity, and that is what takes place um, after the last prophetic event in the Bible. So there's 30 of them that I have lined out in uh, the best chronological order that I can find in the Bible through my study. And of course, I would look forward as we go through this to your input as well as to uh, how things are sequenced chronologically. And uh, certainly open to those discussions. I'd like to share them on the air if I can so that we can edify the listening audience and perhaps um, even induce other people to get involved in asking questions and, and going back and forth as we look at particular issues, because not everything in the Bible is laid out very, very clearly. I firmly believe, uh, one, that there are no dichotomies in the Bible. It doesn't say it's black over here and it's white over here. I also believe firmly that with just about every question, not all of them, I'm sure we're going to find some as we go through, but most every question that people have in the Bible is answered by the Bible somewhere else. And we learn that as we learn the scriptures, as we learn where the books are, where we learn what the themes are for each of the books and each of the major passages in those books, those 66 books. And you start to see how the Bible complements itself from book to book, from passage to passage, from New Testament and Old Testament. Uh, it's just a wonderful book, and it all works pretty seamlessly together if you allow it to. And when I say allow that, obviously I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. You've got to allow the Holy Spirit who indwells you. If you believe Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of your life, then you have God's Holy Spirit. And as we learn in 1 Corinthians, no one knows the Creator God better than His Holy Spirit. And He has graciously empowered uh, parted his Holy Spirit to us, and, and his Holy Spirit indwells us, and it says that he works in you, and just as importantly, he works through you 
as a child of God to share, to allow you, to give you the knowledge to share the good news of Jesus Christ with a world that is, frankly, dying for a Savior. So that's the that's one of the real benefits of knowing the Scripture is it gives you, if you will, the confidence. And I'm not saying you have to be a Bible scholar to share the good news of Jesus Christ. If you've been saved, if you've been changed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life, then you can you can share that. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be an orator, a public speaker, anything like that. The Lord will give you the utterances that you need if you are given the opportunity, and the Lord will give you the opportunities. And believe me, I know from personal experience, if you ask the Lord to give you opportunities, he will. Maybe not exactly the way you're looking at him, but he is perfect, and he knows what he wants to get across to an individual who may be seeking him, and they and he may decide to use you to be the conduit, the flow of information, the source of information to that person who is seeking. And uh, you may have the wonderful opportunity of providing just the right information that makes that causes that person to accept Jesus Christ. And that's a that's a wonderful experience to be part of. But um, the Lord says He will bring to your remembrance, and of course, bringing to your remembrance in, in, in verb in. in <laughs> involves the first part of that word, re-member. In other words, you had to have been there to start with, and then he brings it back to your remembrance. So that's why I think it's so important that we spend so much time going back and forth in the Bible here, that as we do that, this will be brought to your remembrance, and you'll remember things. And I find myself doing that all the time now. When I get into a passage, I'll say, wait a minute, that's in Matthew. Isn't that over in Luke, or isn't that also uh, found in concept form, at least in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, you'll find all of that starts going back and forth, and it just gets you so excited. And when you get excited like that, what do you want? You want more. You know, give me more ice cream, Mom. Well, no, give me more of your truth, Lord. And you know what? He wants nothing more through his Holy Spirit to give you all the knowledge. He says that very specifically in John 16, but he says that over and over in different ways. He wants nothing more than for you to grow in the knowledge of him. And that's what we're all about here at Exploring Bible Prophecy. And that's not to say that our focus is only on Bible prophecy. I love the whole Bible, but it also turns out that I get particularly excited about the prophetic aspects of it because it says that Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is revealed to us through prophecies. And if we can study those prophecies, he, he comes so alive to us. I know he does to me. And I find uh, in my uh, studies of other, of pastors and so forth and ministries and missionaries that actually more people are saved through prophetic teaching, discipleship, than they are through just pure evangelism. Because while Jesus Christ, him uh, crucified and buried, is the core of the gospel understanding all about his ministry and his his total purpose here on the earth and what the future is, is what makes this whole thing come alive. And it gives us what is the core, the essence of our walk as a Christian. It's our hope. What is our hope? Our hope is the return of Jesus Christ, one for the church and two for the rest of the world when he comes at his second coming and all that's going forward because we get to rule and reign with him 
And when we learn all about that through the study of the prophetic scriptures, it just gets me and hopefully would get you so excited that you want to just, you know, give me big spoonfuls of this gospel. Lord, help me to to learn more about you. So get down off the soapbox here today and get back into the scriptures where we were. And we have been looking at specifically at the where the terms the Son of God are being used and the context in which they're being used to help develop that understanding of the difference between the when the when the scriptures through the leading of the Holy Spirit use the term the Son of God as opposed to the Son of Man. And uh, I, I think it's very edifying when you you come to grips, when you grasp that difference. So we're looking now at the Son of God as the first of our seven sets of uh, prophetic terms. And when we finish this part, we'll then transition over to part one um, or uh, point one, part two, which would be looking at the Son of Man. So again, we were in Luke chapter one where the angel interacted with Mary uh, to tell her that she was going to give birth to a son, that his name was Jesus Christ. But it, And then he says, because this is a interaction between you, Mary, and the Holy Spirit of God, you will call him the Son of God, the Son of God, because he's not the Son of a man. It's the interaction, the immaculate conception, uh, resulting in the Holy Spirit coming on Mary, if you will. So we see that in Luke chapter 1. Then we went to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, where Mark simply refers to Jesus as the Son of God. You don't see them talking to the church and referring to Jesus as the Son of Man. Uh, when, he, when, when the gospel writer, again, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, is talking to the church, now they'll be talking to unbelievers and so forth, and they will refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. But when they're talking to the church about church things, he's the Son of God. And we see that over and over and over again. So now we're going to go to Matthew 27 and see what an unbeliever says about Jesus, having seen the result uh, that could only come from God of what happens when Jesus is crucified. So we're going over to Matthew chapter 27, first book of the four Gospels, first book of the New Testament. Matthew, and we're looking at chapter 27, and we want to look specifically at verse um, 54. Now the centurion, and the centurion was somebody, century meaning a hundred. So somebody, a, a most often the centurion was a Roman, and we know at the time of Jesus in Israel, that the soldiers on the centurion usually were not Roman. They were rather Syrians or somebody, uh, Aramaeans from the area. They were conscripts, if you will, but almost always the centurion themselves was an educated Roman, an educated Roman. Verse 54, now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus as he was hanging on the cross when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God, the Son of God. So here's an unbeliever looking at all the circumstances that took place. And of course, you had Jesus on the cross there at Golgotha. You had a man on the right that was a known criminal. 
you had a man on the left that was a known criminal. So he was up there with known criminals. He was being treated. Jesus was being treated as a criminal. Yet this centurion looked around and saw all the events that were taking place and that took place at that point in time, not just with Jesus, but the uh, interaction of the earth, if you will, with the earthquake and the other events that caused him to say, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, can you see here, uh, in this particular circumstance, in this particular passage, where what would have how would it have changed the perspective if this said, um, when when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of Man. The Son of Man. To me, hopefully you can see that just completely changes the, the, the content and the meaning and the impact of what this man is saying, because this man is, a, is an idol worshiper. He is a worshiper of man-made gods or images of gods that have come down to him from many generations of idol worshipers. But he understands because he's been taught that these gods, whether they're Roman gods, Greek gods, or, or the Baals, whatever, it doesn't tell us here, that when they get involved, they can do mighty things. So he's thinking of lowercase c gods as his background. Yet now he he knows a little bit about what's going on with this Jesus fellow that's being persecuted by the authorities in Jerusalem. He's now evidently one of the ranking Roman officers that's responsible for probably, we don't know this, but he may very well have been involved in his flogging and his horrible beatings that caused Jesus to be horribly disfigured. They said to the point where he really couldn't be recognized. This could be the same guy. We don't know. But I would suspect, because they saw this this centurion that was over the soldiers that flogged him, saw how he reacted to these horrible beatings. And now he's seen the, the um, conclusion of this, if you will, on the cross and saw the earthquake and the earth shaking and the rocks were splitting and so forth and so on to make the considered uh, statement this must be the Son of God as opposed to the Son of Man. So hopefully you can see how this is used, even though it's not a, a statement where somebody's trying to convince somebody of something. He's just making this emotional observation that he's now voicing that this must be the Son of God for all of this to happen and that this is um, a, a very positive thing, that this man was somebody a lot greater than what we had had thought he was. So we'll leave that one there for what it is to show you um, how the word, the, the term, the phrase, the Son of God is used and how the, the, the phrase Son of Man just wouldn't fit there, even though it refers to the same person. And then finally, we've looked at Luke, we've looked at Mark, we've looked at Matthew, and now let's look at the Gospel of John. So we will have covered all four Gospels, and we're going to get back into, particularly into Matthew, because Matthew really looked at Jesus as the king more than the others did, the the promised king that was coming to uh, Israel. So Matthew was really writing to the Israelites, to the Jews uh, you could actually say more so than Mark, Luke, and John were. Matthew was so, so, so totally 
Jewish in his writings. So we'll spend a lot of time there. But let's go to John, John chapter 1. So last of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we go to John chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 1, the first part of chapter, well, actually the whole first chapter, but the first part here is something that's probably fairly common to a lot of you that are listening uh, because you've heard this over and over again because it's talking about Jesus uh, clearly being identified as part of the triune Godhead and clearly being identified as uh, part of the Godhead that was there in the beginning at creation. So we look at John chapter 1, and let's look at the first um, three verses here. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see that in the beginning, and of course that's the beginning of creation, that's Genesis 1-1, and then the second use of the Word was with God, so he was part of God. He was the Elohim, the plural of God, referring to the triune Godhead. If you look at Genesis, the whole creation week is all Elohim. It's all the triune Godhead being referred to. And then as soon as the the, the um, creation week is over, the six days of work are over, God pronounces everything good. And then the, the uh, Genesis account in Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 4, changes from Elohim to Yehovah Elohim. So it's a different aspect of God in the triune Godhead, but it's the plural God that's, that does the creation week. And we see that again uh, exemplified here. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this Word is what we're looking for. And then this Word is referred to as He, verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3, all things came into being through him, him being the word, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So very specific statement here about the total involvement of this entity referred to as he and him and as the word. And then we go down to verse 14, and this is the answer to what we're what questions we have about these first three verses. Who's the he? Who's the him? Who's the word? Verse 14, and the word, you notice it's capitalized, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So who is the word, the he, the him, in verses 1, 2, and 3 of John chapter 1, it's Jesus. We see that very clearly in um, verse 14. So we see that he is involved in the beginning there. So we want to set that stage for uh, as we look at John 1, 2, 3. And now we want to go to um, verse 14. Well, 14 we just did. Now we want to go to verses 45, 45 to the end of the chapter, to the end of the chapter, and bring out this point about Son of God. So when we go to uh, John chapter 2, and we're going to have to do that in our next uh, teaching, um, part of our next program, because we need to transition now to our Q&A. So next time, we're going to be in, in John chapter 1. I, I may have said John 2. We're going to be in John chapter 1, 
and we're going to be looking at verses 45 to the end of the chapter. So you might want to look at that in advance uh, as we prepare for our next teaching uh, portion. But now we want to transition back to our Q&A that we've been dealing with for quite a while, and that's the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and particularly during the tribulation, because we have a question from Rich in Indian Springs we've been dealing with, and if the Holy Spirit is the restrainer of evil, mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it says the restrainer is taking out, taken out of the way, therefore the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way so that the Antichrist can start the seven-year tribulation, how can the tribulation saints described in Revelation 20 verse 4 be saved if there's no Holy Spirit there? Well, there is a Holy Spirit, and we're going, we've actually turned it, as I mentioned in our last program, into kind of a mini teaching series here on the manifestation of the triune Godhead on the earth, given that <clears throat> given that the earth is in a sinful state, that God the Father cannot directly interact with man in the sinful state. He interacted with them before in the garden in the perfect state, and he will interact with mankind again at the end in the perfect state um, after the great white throne judgment and all sin has been thrown into the lake of fire never to be manifested again. So we'll be in a perfect state again. And then God, the first part of the triune Godhead, will be directly involved. But in the meantime, the other two parts of the Godhead interact uh, because of man's fallen state. And we started looking at that, and we went to Genesis 18 in our last program and talked about how there were three men. We learned that they were angels, and then we learned that one of the three angels was actually the angel of the Lord, referred to as the Lord. And we find out that that's the pre-incarnate Christ that is interacting with man during the Old Testament and actually coming to them in human form, uh, even though they're angels, and particularly the angel of the Lord. So we saw that in Genesis 18, and we actually went to Genesis 19.1 to further clarify that these men were indeed angels. Then we want to uh, transition to another aspect, and we want to go to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, and this is one of the five books called the Pentateuch, Penta being five, the five books that Moses wrote, uh, also referred to as the Torah, the Torah. And we want to go to the fourth of the five books. So you want to go past Leviticus. If you're at the front of your Bible, past Leviticus into Numbers. If you go too far, you get into Deuteronomy. So you want to go back, you want to go to Numbers, and you want to go to Numbers chapter 22. And this is an interesting passage through here, and it's actually something that you get a kind of a chuckle out of because it has to do with the talking donkey. Uh, but it also tells us about the... Um, the angel of the Lord and how mighty he is when he interacts with men. So in Numbers chapter 22, let's go to verse 20 first. So Numbers chapter 22, verse 20. And look at how it reads here. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come, have come to call you, rise up and go with them but only the word which I speak to you shall you do. 
In other words, I'm calling you Balaam. You're going to be my spokesman, but I only want you to say what I tell you to say, nothing else. And we see how that works out. But the key thing here is the beginning of verse 20 says God spoke to him. Well, we know that God, as the the first member of the triune God, had Jehovah Elohim. Jehovah Elohim is the key point I want to get across here is that it's the first part of the triune Godhead, and God cannot interact directly with sinful man. The Bible tells us that. He cannot have sin in his presence. So when we're talking about God, we've got to look at who's being, who is he really referring to, and we're going to have that spelled out to us here in Numbers chapter 22 as we go through this. So uh, bear with me and bear with my voice. Uh, for some reason, it's starting to break on me here, but That's verse 20. Now let's drop down to verse 35. So we get a clarification. But the angel of the Lord, do you see that? The angel of the Lord, not an angel. We see that other places. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. So we want to look at verse 35 and relate it back to verse 20. It's the same admonition. Only say, Balaam, only say what I tell you. So it's the same admonition, but in 20, it's God. And in verse 35, it's the angel of the Lord. So we're seeing it's a different manifestation of the same God. We don't have Jehovah Elohim doing it. We have the pre-incarnate Christ also referred to as the angel of the Lord, is doing the speaking here. He's the one that's physically there dealing with uh, Balaam in this instance. So we have verse 35, and now we want to go over to uh, chapter 26. Uh, No, I'm sorry, we want to go to verse 26. So it's um, 35 and then um, 26 to 31. Let's back up is what it is. I went to 35 to make the distinction or comparison rather with um, verse 20, but now we want to go back and capture the context of what we're talking about here. So let's look at verse 26 through 31. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or to the left. When When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with a stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, I am not your donkey, and am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to you to do so to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. This was a direct interaction of God through the form of the angel of the Lord interacting with man and directly directing him. That's magnificent. We'll continue to look at examples like that in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. 
Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.